Hi, my name is David Dishman. I'm a reporter with The Oklahoman. I cover medical marijuana, and today I helped moderate a panel on medical marijuana at St. Luke's Church in Oklahoma City. The event was hosted by Leadership Oklahoma City, and we discussed the business impact, health regulations, and the overall state of the industry in Oklahoma. The first question is a very broad one, and I'm curious to hear from you for about the impact of medical marijuana, not only in the state, but specifically with what uh, you all do in your everyday jobs. Uh, and it was very 
well received and lots and lots of questions. And as a result, I continue to get lots of questions about it routinely and, and even the old, could you come do that presentation for this group or that group? Because there's a tremendous uh, thirst for information about, uh, about this whole topic. So that's where I would be mostly connected. Well, first of all, let me just say, I was excited. I came into lunch, and I thought we were going to be serving Cheetos and beef jerky, knowing the topic. So congrats uh, to the planning committee for sticking with the normal lunch. Uh, let, me, let me give you my perspective from a slightly different side. We're a producer, and while the medical impact is, uh, you know, the physicians here can speak to that more than I can, uh, but I would tell you that we've seen the greatest deployment of startup capital in the state since we struck oil. And we've had a little land rush and an entire industry just manifested out of the ether and now we're looking at a quarter billion dollar uh, industry that I think will go to a half billion dollar industry this year. So it's just fascinating watching the deployment of capital and the talent allocation and how we're uh, really creating something out of nothing. And the uh, closest proxy I can find is it's, it's a land run and striking oil all combined into one. David, I wanted to ask a follow-up question to that, and everybody here knows that we've seen the dispensaries on every single corner, it seems like. Uh, we know that there's tons of businesses that it's it's very prevalent. Uh, what, where are we at now? What What is the industry looking like, the market uh, uh, within within medical marijuana? Where, where are things going at this moment now that we're a little over a year into it? Yeah, so 2020 is going to be the year of the great bloodletting in the state. So you're about to watch the, uh, the pendulum swing back the other way. And what's going to uh, uh, hurt businesses here, but by the way, I'm supportive of how our policymakers put this into place. I'm a free market capitalist. Let's let people put their risk capital in play and their talent in play and let the, you know, let the best stand. That's best for the consumer. It's best for the market. Uh, so it's a good, good approach. It's not negative. Uh, but there's certainly a saturation of retail outlets. There's a saturation of cultivators. Uh, we'll find market equilibrium. Um, but the two things that are interesting from an economic perspective is price consolidation is already occurring, and also taxation is unique. There's no regular business expense deductions for the cannabis industry. So my salary is not deductible for a company, as an example. Uh, that's extraordinarily challenging. Rent, not deductible. Uh, most capex, so we can't deduct it. So we're paying 42% effective tax rates off the gross in most cases. That will bankrupt most companies that you see on the street corner. So I would guess that you're going to see 60 to 70% of those retail stores closed uh, by October. And why October? Because that's when that tax bills do. Yeah, I've got to agree with that. When, when you said the great bloodletting, it's very descriptive, and I have been saying the same thing for a year or so. Every week I open the Gazette and the first place I turn to is near the back, the toke board, where they keep track of the number of people who have been issued and applied for medical marijuana licenses, the number of dispensaries, and the number of uh, growing operations. And just do some quick math in my head every week and we're just over uh, 100 um, medical marijuana license holders per dispensary. Is, is what it uh, calculates out to, and I, I just don't see any way that, that um, that's sustainable. Uh, I'd be surprised if, if we didn't lose more dispensaries. Of course, they're spread out through the state, uh, throughout the state. The urban versus rural, there's going to be some significant differences there, but it is going to be, uh, it's going to be kind of ugly. So one of the things that David pointed out is the tax implications related to a marijuana for a marijuana-related business. 
And I, as he said, most business expenses that you would expect are not tax deductible. And I think one of the other things that you might see in the industry is some, um, some diversity. Because the issue with the IRS is, are you trafficking in drugs <laughs> and doing an elite? That's what they're looking at it as when they say it's not tax deductible. However, if you have a business that is legitimate business and has legitimate products, those that if that is a separate, completely separate startup, you know, if you have, you know, like you have your marijuana-related business on one side of the store, and then you have your your legal products like your T-shirts and your hats or whatever you want to do on the other side of the store, those are legal products. If that's a completely separate business, um, that is that that can be a separate business with its own. You know, you could be able to deduct those business expenses. So I think that there's going to be some diversity um, if for some some of these businesses. The ones that'll survive, they won't just stick to that one industry. I think they're going to diversify inside the stores. You bring up a good point about the the legalities and the and who better to speak to legal loopholes and policies than a lawyer. Um, that loophole was not mine. I. <laughs> But I, we have a lot of uh, business professionals in here, uh, many who are uh, now dealing with, okay, what do I do with employees who are medical marijuana patients, and uh, what if I want to allow it, what if I don't want to allow it in my workplace, um, what if I'm a patient and my employer uh, is saying I don't want that, or vice versa. Uh, can, you, can you explain a little bit about what you're seeing and, and how you're, you're working through that from a legal standpoint? The first thing I, the way that we work through it is we consult your lawyer because I can't answer all those questions just sitting here on the stage because it's it's a process and it depends on your industry and the type of employee you have and whether your employee has a medical marijuana license. So uh, really step one is what industry are you in? If you are in an industry that is uh, all white collar individuals who don't have anything what's called safety sensitive as defined by um, the state legislature, and you don't have any employees that are regulated by the Department of Transportation, um, the employees with a medical marijuana license, uh, they are permitted under normal circumstances to partake in their and use according to their, their medical marijuana license. And you're going to want to have a policy in place that talks about, um, you want to have two policies. Policy number one is um, we don't allow you to use drugs possess drugs or um, partake on during your working hours or on our premises. And then policy two is a question that I have encountered with countless employers is, do we test for, continue to test for marijuana? If you are in an industry that has something that safety is a concern, um, if you have, or, or if you're regulated by the Department of Transportation and you have to test, uh, for marijuana, a lot of employers are, are taking off marijuana off the, the off the list of what they're having their employees tested for um, because it's not worth it for them to have to go through the process of you know finding out a person testing a person testing positive and then finding out they have a medical marijuana license. Then you don't get to do you can't do anything after that if it, if they're not a safety sensitive job because. Um, that would be violate the anti-discrimination provisions that were passed um, twice. We have two different anti-discrimination provisions: one with the um, when we when we first legalized marijuana, and then with the utility bill later on. 
Um, so the, the, a lot of questions about what industry you're in and what you're doing and what, you're, what you are concerned about with your employees, those are a lot of the questions that I address. And then from there we say, okay, so this is the policy we need. Um, this is the policy we don't want. Um, but something else that uh, comes up a lot is what if my employee comes into work and they are clearly high and they are very inebriated in some way and they're, and they're not producing. Even if you don't test them, even if, um, if they're not doing their job, if you document that and you're disciplining based on behavior and it's purely based on behavior, that is going to be that should be a legitimate, non-discriminatory reason for that discipline or termination. Um, as which it would be the same in the case of like if a person came in drunk, you would be able to discipline them for their behavior, not the consumption of the alcohol. Um, and so those are those are a lot of different. <laughs> so that's a, that's a, yeah, that's a, I could talk for hours. <laughs> Um, unfortunately, we don't have that. But uh, oh, you don't want to hear me. You, you mentioned okay. you mentioned uh, disciplining uh, for the behavior as opposed to the, the consumption and documenting. But, but what about what what can be done? Like uh, Dr. Prescott, I'm thinking of you in this question as we were talking a little bit earlier about what testing is even available. If and, and is there something that's uh, out there right now? Are, are people getting tested? Uh, well, there certainly are tests, um, but I, I don't think there are much utility, to, in part because of some of the reasons that Lauren alluded to. Uh, and I, I, I take your point. I think it's really the key one is is the, is the person prepared. And, and, of course, you know, there's a lot of concern around this, and it's, it really relates back to this issue of are we talking about using marijuana for a medical indication, so it should be seen as a medication? Uh, just and there are many medications that can impair function. Right? So various uh, pain treatments and tranquilizers and so forth can lead to impairment. If somebody is a heavy machinery operator or a surgeon in the operating room or whomever it is uh, that you don't want in any business, so you want to make sure of that. Now, what we don't typically think of, and those are all legitimate uses of the medication, they just have the side effect that they created the, the situation that's, that's dangerous. We, then we have alcohol in a different category, right? Because you shouldn't come to work uh, drunk and impaired. And I think that's what the, where the confusion is. So are people who are using marijuana, are, are, they, are they coming in drunk because they did this improperly? Or is it, are they, is it a side effect of the, the treatment? So, so that's the, the, the part that you need to parse out. Uh, and with alcohol, for example, we can use blood test for it, or we can use a breathalyzer and so forth. And that's their pretty accurate, not perfectly accurate, but reasonably so within ranges. They're not, it's not true with the tests you can do for marijuana. And part of the, part of the reason, I should let Dr. Shaver speak some of this, part of the reason is the nature of the, of the compounds that cause the impairment, so the, the cannabinoids. And they, they like to dissolve in fat. I mean, they, that's where they go into your body. You're going to wind up in the fat rather than in the, the liquid part of our body, the blood. Uh, and that means that you, there's going to be a storage of them for quite a while. So you may have a blood test that's positive from having uh, consumed marijuana a week ago or, or sometime. It would still be positive at some level. Uh, would that mean you're impaired? Certainly not. I mean, it just indicates you did. Uh, and we don't have that issue with alcohol because if I have a martini on Sunday, it's not going to show up in my test on Thursday. Right? So it's gone. 
so that's that's the big problem right now that the that the tests don't reflect what's happening now, and it is a good indicator of impairment. Right? They just don't. Uh, will there be? Can we develop such tests? Probably so. Uh, to, to be the ones that would more accurately reflect what's going on in your body right this instant, and is that reasonably correlated with impairment? Uh, those don't exist yet. A lot of people are trying, uh, and they, they, I think they probably will be developed. Uh, but as Laura and I were talking earlier, that's then once they're developed, it's going to be a decade before they widely used because it's going to have to be litigated and appealed and so forth and so on. I mean, you think you know, blood alcohol are still get litigated today, right? After yeah. all these years. So I'm not optimistic that blood tests or, or some similar tests is going to be very useful in the near future. Yeah. I had a question uh, that we got from the crowd before the, uh, with their RSVP uh, that uh, I think David and, and our doctors here will maybe can speak to. But someone asked, I'm told that today's marijuana is 10 times stronger than it was in the 70s. I don't know if this came from somebody who was familiar with it in the 70s. But, uh, should we be concerned that addiction rates might be higher too? Um, with the stronger weed, stronger, more addictions. Is that, is that of concern? Well, I'll, I'll jump in. Um, that's, that, that is a fair, fair assessment of the state of the amount of THC that is in marijuana that's available today. I think the Woodstock era, um, THC um, concentrations being anywhere from 2 to 3%. There are strains now that produce, start to approach 30% THC, um, so a tenfold uh, increase. Um, as far as addiction rates, it, for many years it was said that you cannot get addicted to marijuana. Physically, psychologically maybe, but physically no. I, we're dealing with essentially, in my opinion, a different drug now. Um, the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual um, that psychiatrists and psychologists use to um, aid in, in uh, making diagnoses now includes um, cannabis use disorder as well as cannabis withdrawal syndrome. So um, they have pretty, pretty strongly come down on the side that, yes, it is addictive. There is a withdrawal syndrome that, that is associated with chronic cannabis use. Well, let me speak to the uh, the 10% number. So I concur. It's, you know, you would typically see what most people that you're listening to your CCR and you have your lava lamp going and you'd say, let's smoke some ditch weed. And it was really an unrefined uh, product, right? And nowadays we've crossbred. And I, I see you laughing there, and I'm not going to point out who you are because I feel like I just called out your college. But the... Uh, but the idea now is, yes, we can cultivate. We've actually had um, THC tests are actually unreliable as well. So when you hear these 30%, we, we can cultivate today's strains up to 36%. Um, but the idea behind that is, is like alcohol. We can brew and ferment beer to be 14%. That's not what I like to drink. You know, I'll, I'll take a, a, a happy little 5% beer that, that's, that's working. So actually our worst sellers are the most potent. And so people that are cannabis users for legitimate uses are actually looking for broad-spectrum cannabinoid profiles that, that uh, affect the body in a different way. So one of our best sellers is about a 10% content. That would be to try to draw a proxy to beer or something that, that's like selling a 5% uh, 
alcohol by weight beverage as opposed to a 15% uh, beer. And also I'd like to point out that the, there are many different strains of marijuana. Some of these extremely high THC content um, strains of marijuana are very low in some of the compounds that we're thinking of potentially have some, some therapeutic benefit. Um, the terpenes, the terpenoids that are in there. Um, there is, there does seem to be a sweet spot in the middle um, where they have a, a fair amount of THC as well as these other compounds as well. The, the very high concentration THC strains tend not to have those, those beneficial products or beneficial compounds. And then we got to think about industrial hemp as well, which is primarily um, CBD and those other terpenes has extremely little uh, THC. 0.3% is the maximum amount that it can have. Yeah, I think the comparison to alcohol is really an apt one because you say, I mean, you can have pure grain alcohol. Who the hell wants to drink that, right? Uh, and, uh, as, as compared to... It depends on how bad the sooners get beaten up. Well, uh, uh, as compared to a, a, a really good wine or something like that. And again, what, what are the components that are in there? And uh, this points out one of the real shortcomings right, in having this discussion or any other now. Uh, and that when I, when I gave a talk to my board, I said, we're going to do this like a, a call and respond church service. I said, because you're going to start asking me questions and the answer is going to always be the same. We don't know. And so I have people chant that out. As soon as somebody has a question, we say, we don't know would be the answer. And in there are over a hundred of these related chemicals in, in a marijuana plant, maybe, maybe more. I think anybody really knows the exact number at, at various levels. But they're chemically similar. You know, THC is thought to be the most important one where it's psychoactive. There are others that have some effect. And then there's ones like CBD that have other effects. And most of the others, we have no idea what they do. And with, in these uh, natural products, there's going to be different amounts of all of them in there. Uh, and there's just not, there's starting these studies that speak to which ones are doing what uh, in different disease situations. Uh, one one uh, theme that kind of got brought up several times from these folks uh, is a continued, uh, I don't know if it's a confusion or lack of information on how the process works from someone who uh, decides, hey, I think I might like to get my uh, medical marijuana card. I think I'd like to purchase some medical marijuana. Uh, what does that look like um, for a person who goes and then goes into a dispensary and purchases? What, what is the follow-up uh, from a uh, physician's standpoint? Um, what are they telling a patient, hey, you need to try this or do this? Um, if there is uh, anything, uh, any, any guidance on that, and how does that work from a patient physician to a patient to a dispensary perspective? Um, hmm. <laughs> well, I'll, let, me, I'll, let me start with what we, uh, we run two research clinics uh, at OMRF, so we're not in the medical care business in general, but, but we have two, and they're, they're, they're both determined to be sort of, uh, be kind of on point. One is multiple sclerosis clinic, and uh, that one of the uh, one of the areas that is, I think, most widely accepted a beneficial use of medical marijuana is in spasticity or muscle spasms in MS patients. So, uh, and then secondly, we have a, we run a clinic in severe forms of arthritis where we're looking at causes and so forth. Again, people with chronic pain. Uh, this is really, again, another uh, area that's thought to be uh, relevant. 
we, so we decided not to establish a policy. We have none. Uh, and individual physicians uh, sort that out with their patients. So we think it's a physician-patient issue for them to deal with. Uh, and one point I would make is that you actually don't write a prescription. Uh, you make a recommendation, uh, and then the patient can get that uh, their, their card or certificate they would take to the dispensary. Uh, so the physician didn't prescribe that. Uh, and I'd say that most physicians, certainly I don't think any buyers would be consider themselves expert in what to use here. And in fact, we had a little discussion earlier about even what delivery method uh, you should use. Uh, and particularly things like edibles are, are really problematic. What, what the dose is, because we don't know what dose should be used for muscle spasms or chronic pain from arthritis. And in many cases, the patient is going to have to titrate that themselves. Now, we do that with other medications as well, uh, pain medications, for example. So it's not uh, unusual, uh, but it is a little bit problematic in the case of medical marijuana about how do they titrate. I did, I did bring it up partially because of that. Like you said with the prescriptions, it's, I, I talk to people all the time who are under the impression that a dispensary is uh, basically a pharmacy. And it's, it's not that way. You don't take your prescription and say, I need this filled. And they say, okay, uh, you know, we'll give you X number of tablets uh, because your doctor signed off on it. You have your card. You take it to the dispensary, and that gets you in the door, and you're able to purchase uh, what you choose, not what your physician set out for you. They might have recommended something, or maybe they didn't. Um, so it, it operates very differently in that sense. Since we uh, own and operate what is probably by square foot is the largest dispensary in the state, maybe I can speak to that just real quickly, what happens if you've never been into one. So we check you in, you walk to the counter, you're greeted by someone we call a bud tender. I hate that name. Let's, let's just understand that what this person is is a very experienced individual on a personal level. Is that fair? <laughs> um, they probably have a backwards hat and the name of a band on the shirt you've never heard of, but... They know the products. And really how that interaction goes, it's really challenging as a retailer because when you walk in and say, you know what, I have insomnia, you know, I'm, I'm sick of taking, you know, three, you know, three glasses of wine and a, and a knife, you know, whatever, a sleeping pill every night. My doctor said I should try this. Well, we can't say, guess what, this strain seems to work really, really well for insomnia. We can't say that. We can create some liability. So we have to really couch our language that, you know, a lot of other people that have told us they struggle with insomnia would actually appreciate having this edible and this dosage. Take two and call us in the morning and see how it went. And that's really how it goes. And we iterate, and you'll see the same customer. I actually walked through our store on the way here, and I saw a gentleman that delivers your pizza in his uniform at our store, and he comes in twice a day, every day. And he spends a couple of bucks, and he gets a microdose, and he heads out and brings you your pizzas. So it's a, it's a really interesting thing, but he's, they're learning through iteration, through trial and error, and that's the only way to do it. And your only guide in all of this is basically someone that, you know, is, uh, I hate to say this, was probably parking your car or, uh, you know, doing something else before this and really just enjoyed cannabis. And now they have an outlet by which they can share their passions. I've, I've also heard them referred to as cannabinistas. So <laughs> I can't spell that, so I can't put that on a business card. Um, so... Let's back up a little bit. The person who decides that they would like to um, pursue getting a medical marijuana card, it's, it's very, actually a fairly simple process. The, um, 
Medical Marijuana Authority website, that's omma.ok.gov, has the application online. It's a one-page application, and really just about the first third of it is for the applicant, the person who, who wants the card. Um, and it's looking for basic information, what's your name, your address, date of birth. Um, that really is about it. Fill that out. Um, they will ask for an electronic copy of the front and back of your driver's license or your tribal ID card or Oklahoma identity card. And you've got most of it knocked out when you've got that filled out. The next step is to take it to uh, the physician who will evaluate you, um, hopefully do a um, thorough medical evaluation. I'm, I'm afraid that in many cases that actually is not going on. But then it's up to the physician to uh, provide a signature. That physician has to um, uh, be licensed with the um, DO or the MD board in the state. And there is a section, a fairly large section, right in the middle of the application for um, diagnosis or ICD-10 codes. Um, for the physician to put in, what, what is this person using the medical marijuana for? It's interesting to me that we are the only state where this is optional. No diagnosis has to be made. Um, that, that can be left blank. We're the only state where, where that's the case. Maybe I can just add one thing. Statistically, I did some quick math. About 15 people in here have their cards, so just ask your closest friends and family because you probably already missed one and can tell you how this works. I... Uh... I've been shocked as I've gotten to involved in covering the industry and reporting on the industry just by, you, you kind of joked about who's coming into the dispensaries a lot. We think of, we picture exactly who, you, you, cl you can close your eyes, you can think of who you think of at a dispensary, and they're there. But I've also been shocked by the number of um, people I never would have ever imagined behind getting behind medical marijuana because they find out hey, I can sleep better, hey, I can, it, it's, it's having a profound effect on uh, the older generation, maybe the more conservative generation that, that, that you would think, no way would they ever support it, but it turns out a good night's sleep can change a lot of minds on things, so um, go ahead, Lauren. Well, you bring up sleep, and I probably had 10 clients who have had employees who want to take medical marijuana, or they want to take the marijuana for sleeping aids, and we get into a whole discussion, and it, oh, I'm going to open a can of worms, but about whether or not this individual can do that, and we can accommodate that. And, and in some cases, we have had you know, a high-level executive person who is responsible for, one of them was a mathematician, and she, and she was responsible for making sure all the math was accurate for drilling, and that can become a really big issue. So we stepped into the safety-sensitive area of, is this a safety-sensitive position? Because it's not. She's doing math. So it's. I think that it's, um, especially with something like insomnia, it's, that's been, for us, been more in, more employees than anything that I've talked about and dealt with. So. Trying to figure that out, trying to figure out, is this something I can do? Is this Right. Because, you know, and, and also having to deal with the definition of safety-sensitive, because it all, if you look at the list of the definition of safety sensitive, it's mostly um, labor positions. Um, you would doctors would fall under that. You know, you're technically. I don't think it lists EMT, but you would hope that EMTs and police they they would fall under that. 
child care providers would fall under that, but your mathematician for an oil rig that um, employs you know, 25 people whose lives are at risk based on that math, not listed there. So we have to do an evaluation kind of um, for something like that. Or um, your IT director at your bank is not considered a safety-sensitive position under the definition. Um, do you want your IT director at your financial institution taking marijuana? And that's something that leading into um, the actual practice and implementation of, of these laws that we've seen more issues with. Yeah. The safety-sensitive description of jobs, that's part of uh, what came from the Unity Bill and, and the legislative last legislative session was this massive bill that included a ton of regulations uh, for the marijuana industry. Um, but we're bound to see more coming in the next session, and I'm sure for sessions years into the future. Uh, what do you guys see as being um, a need uh, politically that needs to be addressed? Uh, also, uh, what progress do you think needs to be made? Uh, if it was in the same kind of question was regarding testing um, and if there's going to be more uh, regulated testing and, and that sort of thing. So what do you guys see kind of on the horizon in the near future uh, with respect to those two things? I'm not going to answer that one because okay. I don't know what's on the horizon in the near future. But what, what needs to be done, in my opinion, the highest priority thing would be to rationalize this discrepancy between the federal and state uh, uh, laws and regulations. So uh, marijuana is listed as a Schedule One drug by the Department by the DEA, so by the federal, and so it is illegal for anything that's federally uh, really, really, uh, regulated, and so that's why you can't do interstate commerce and, and all sorts of things. Uh, it's one of the big barriers to additional research in the area. Everything that you want to study about is impaired because it's listed as Schedule One, and that it's incredibly onerous to try to get qualified to, to work on Schedule One drugs. And, and the official definition of Schedule One is no known medical benefit. I mean, it's absurd because actually several things that are on Schedule One do have some known medical benefit, but it's political. That those are things that are like LSD, and there's a lot of interest in LSD for psychiatric disorders now. Heroin, heroin is an outstanding uh, drug for pain management and so forth. So there are medical indications. It's just that they have been abused, and so now they're politically pariahs, if you will, and marijuana's in there. It's completely absurd that marijuana is on that list, and we need to get that on, that changed, so that it would really allow all sorts of things, like more research on a good uh, blood test, or many, many, many other things, in fact, you know, banking and all, all sorts of other issues uh, that could be resolved that way. So that's where I think the focus ought to be. And until we get that changed, there's going to continue to be a, a real problem, irrespective of what happens in individual states. I, I agree with the conflict between state and federal law is probably one of the, the biggest challenges we have right now because it's, it's a long list. What you talked about, Schedule One banking laws, um, it's, there's a legislation that for the Safe Banking Act, is that the name correct? Um, that is, Congress has introduced but has not addressed. They're a little busy right now, so they they have not addressed that and how we deal with banking. 
And, but another front on the employment front, we also have um, the Americans with Disabilities Act, and we have the Oklahoma Anti-Discrimination Act. Um, the Oklahoma Anti-Discrimination Act says you get that all the defenses that fall under the ADA um, also apply to defenses for the Oklahoma Anti-Discrimination Act. Well, the um, the Oklahoma the Oklahoma Civil Rights, the Civil Rights Unit that enforces the OADA, they have come out and said, the head of that unit has said, we believe that you need to reasonably accommodate certain individuals for their marijuana use. Well, that would be an opposite of what the actual defenses are for the Oklahoma Anti-Discrimination Act to, are with the ADA. So it's I sound like I'm circular right now, but it's very, there's some complications related to that and how we enforce our state law versus the federal law and do we need to reasonably accommodate individuals who um, who have used medical marijuana and going forward or do we not need to accommodate them because under federal law it's drug use. Under state law, do we not have that defense anymore? I, I agree 100%. Conflict between um, state and federal law. Um, Schedule one, in addition to um, being no recognized uh, legitimate medical use, um, is that there's a high risk for abuse. Um, does it belong in there with with heroin and some of the other remarkably abused drugs? I I'm not sure. I, I would tend to think that it's it's doesn't belong in Schedule one. Interestingly. Heroin at one time was a prescription medication. It was marketed as a non-addictive alternative to morphine. So there's something we learned about um, uh, pretty shortly after it was approved. Um, there are recognized benefits um, because because of the, the prescriptions against um, receiving federal dollars while you're researching uh, marijuana. Um, unless you jump through all those incredibly expensive and labor-intensive hoops. Um, the information that we have as far as medical utility of, of marijuana is, is pretty sparse. So in 2000, actually in 2016, National Academy of Sciences um, looked at all the available research um, worldwide on use of uh, cannabis and had people across a broad um, spectrum of, of specialties, both medical specialties, statisticians, um, you name it, they had somebody on the panel. And in their conclusions, they came to the conclusion that there is stronger convincing evidence that marijuana or cannabis in one form or another is good for chronic pain, for the nausea that's associated with chemotherapy, and as, as um, Dr. Prescott mentioned, the um, uh, spasticity that's associated with multiple sclerosis. There is a product that's making its way through the FDA right now that um, is a combination of CBD and THC in about a one-to-one -one ratio. Um, it's already approved in the European Union and in Canada for that spasticity. So I anticipate that, that we're going to see it here approved in the United States in, in relatively short order. Yeah, that, that, oh, sorry. That, that was a fascinating Review. They reviewed 10,000 papers uh, published worldwide. And one of the, uh, to Dr. Shaver's point about the barriers in the U.S., virtually all those papers were done outside of the United States because 
we just haven't been in the game. And that's contrary to everything else in medical research where we lead the world. Uh, here we trail because of these regulatory barriers. Uh, the, one of the funny things, and there's also, it's also they found for a certain type of seizures in children. So there's now been a CBD preparation approved for that, a rare form of seizures. One of the interesting things is we've talked already about uh, insomnia, uh, and the other one is just sort of appetite signal. Uh, they looked at all the papers, and they actually didn't find strong evidence. But these are two that I think are, those are laydowns. I mean, come on. Uh, you start off with a joke about uh, appetite signals, right? Uh, so I, I think that an appetite stimulant for people with chronic diseases and, and sleep aids are also, clear, in my view, clearly in that area where there's, there's compelling evidence and they, they work. Yeah. David, I had one question for you uh, before we, maybe depending on how long you take to answer. Uh, but before we get into it, then we'll open it up. To I'm going to keep it like me, short. Okay. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of movers and shakers in this room, um, very uh, interested business folks. What, and this industry has generated a lot of revenue, a lot of money, a lot of businesses. Where have you seen people really succeed? And then what faults uh, or mistakes have you seen businesses stumble over in the early goings that maybe they're already out of the business? Bit of a loaded question. So the, the short answer is this industry is like any other industry. If you try to cut corners, it's going to catch up with you really quick. And I think the folks that uh, – so my chief cultivator, by the way, uh, my, my wife says likes to introduce me as a pot farmer. She's like uh, just to try to get something out of it. I said I just count the money. But uh, the idea here is that my chief cultivator is a 180-pound white guy with dreadlocks. He's, he's exactly what you think the weed industry is like. I draw that distinction because I may not look like what you think the cannabis industry looks like. Uh, maybe it is. Point being, there's two different types of individuals that seem to deploy capital. There are successful business people that saw this as a, as a way to create alpha and create return. And there are people that are passionate about cannabis that you know, ask what a tax return is. So, because they probably haven't filed the personal taxes since you know, Reagan. So the idea here is that you either have really smart business people that don't understand cannabis and they lose all authenticity with a customer base that does understand the product. I have no business being owning a, a vineyard and a winery because I, I don't appreciate wine and I, I couldn't connect with people. And so those are the two gaps that we see. People that are passionate about cannabis don't know how to run a business. They're going to get wholly crushed, especially when the tax man cometh. Or individuals that think because they ran a successful XYZ company in town, they can deploy capital into cannabis and do so with any sort of brand authenticity that's going to resonate with patients. Because at the end of the day, this is a commodity. And so the idea is how do you create your own custom genetics and how do you establish a brand that makes people follow you? In the same way that why do we drink Coke and Pepsi instead of RC? They were, they were most successful at the, the brand deployment. So the, the two gaps are going to be the companies that best figure out a way to, to blend cannabis passion and uh, business knowledge. Do you see... Uh I've seen some dispensaries that I've visited take different approaches. One uh, marketing to one side and then one to the other that you kind of mentioned. Those that you suspect would be very interested in cannabis and then those that uh, are new and, and exploring it for the first time and have never been in a dispensary and maybe have never bought marijuana at all. Um, and so I've noticed a stark difference. How's your business approach to that on how do you cater toward uh, different folks? Well, that's the billion-dollar gamble, right? What, how do you position your brand? How do you, how do you appeal uh, what would 
affectionately called the head shop. So, you know, a lot of people take spring break and they head up to Colorado and you're in Breckenridge and there's a there's a weed shop in downtown Breckenridge that's, you know, it's tie-dye t-shirts and, you know, you walk in there and there's smoke in the air. I mean, that's a head shop. That's, that's not going to be effective in the medical state. On the flip side, if you try to pump in lavender scents, no one wants that, right? And it's too much. And there's a company here that pumps in lavender smells into their dispensaries and it's not working. So how do you blend the two? Well, whoever gets it right is going to be the millionaire. So all I say to this is, you know, our position has been to kind of go up the middle, be approachable. And the idea, uh, we have a litmus test, a two-part litmus test, which is if the flat bills, as we like to call them, if the crowd that's wearing the flat bills and, and, you know, they're too cool for school, if they can walk in there and feel that we're hip enough to still do a transaction, but at the same time, if my grandfather could walk in and seek an alternative to prescription pain medicines and feel comfortable, then we've done our job right. So that's our position in the market. We'll see if we're right over time. Fantastic. Um, as we're running out of time here on our general section, we'd like to open it up for you guys. Uh, and if any of you have additional questions, maybe something that you didn't send in earlier or they said something uh, in the last hour or so that prompted a question, uh, we'd love to have that happen. Do we have microphones or do I need to bring this one out? I can be... Okay. something in the effect of the Safe Banking Act, Safe Banking Acronym, S-A-F-E. It's going to have to be a change at the federal level before you see really any uh, proper deployment of capital in a traditional sense. Uh, you also can't take public funds. Um, so we're, we're, we're three to five years is my best estimate. Um, yeah, that's my, that's, uh, bet my fortune on that one. Sally's coming behind you with the microphone. Just a question on semantics on the medical marijuana card. I have heard differing reports on once you get your card, there are limitations to other things in your life you're restricted on. Do you know anything about that, like firearms purchasing and things like that, just out of curiosity? There are some. You can't have a concealed weapons license, I think, is one of them. There are a few. I can't think of it off the top of my head. Um, again, this unity bill that was passed had, is, what, 60 pages long, 50 pages long? Um, and so there are several things that are addressed in that. I, I apologize. I don't know that off the top of my head. Then to address your question in particular, yes, uh, the concealed carry or now the open carry license is one contradiction. But uh, bill, bill filing just concluded uh, the bill deadline. There was 25 bills that affected medical marijuana that were filed. And uh, none of those have shell language, so they're all fully, so you can start reading about all the changes. But the 25 separate bills uh, uh, have been filed to make some changes, and I believe that's actually been one item that was addressed in one of those bills. And you also have to take into account that um, to go in and purchase a firearm, uh, you have to fill out a federal form where you're asked specifically, are you a regular user of intoxicating substances or something along those lines. 
So, um, you know, the person uh, who is using medical marijuana will, will have to make that decision how they're going to answer that question on a federal form. I have a question. Uh, I'm not sure who can speak to this, but I work in child welfare, so my question would be regarding parents who um, have their children removed due to issues regarding substance abuse. How or are you seeing any kind of issues or, or anyone or any people talking to you guys about ways we can try to regulate this and where parents don't run to seek medical marijuana cars as a way to quickly get their children back but not really addressing the issue of substance abuse? I haven't encountered that yet, and I think that that's something that the, is probably going to end up in litigation with the way that the laws are written right now. Um, but there is no, none of the laws passed to date have provided a protection for a medical marijuana license holder and in the child protective services arena. But I, I haven't encountered that yet. Um, can you explain the difference between CBD and medical marijuana? It's my understanding that there's a high associated with one, but not the other, and what, what benefits CBD gives you versus what benefits medical marijuana? I'm going to start by saying that, in general, we can't tell you what component in marijuana has a favorable effect. Of the things we've listed that where it's clearly medically indicated, we we don't know. There's a presumption that, it, that a lot of it's THC, uh, so that's, that stands for tetrahydrocannabinolysis, is the chemical name of it. Uh, and there, there's reason to believe that, in that there, it's been, there have been synthetic forms that have been made very similar to those and tested, and, and, and they have some of the same positive effects. Uh, that was many years ago. Um, but and then CBD is cannabidiol, and so it's, again, it's very closely related chemically but different, slightly different. Um, and, and then there are many others, over 100 others, members of this family. Be like, uh, think of your family or your union when you see all these remote cousins that you haven't seen in a while, but they're all still in the same family. Right? Uh, and we don't know which of those is important for what. Uh, but now CBD, which of course you see, is being put in all kinds of lotions and this and that and the other. Uh, CBD is the one that I said was approved for a form of seizures, a rare, very serious form of seizures in children. Uh, it's not so clear that it works in any other kind of seizures. But so that just the CBD alone uh, works for these seizures. So it was always featured in Lorenzo's Oil in the movie years ago. So, uh, but, so will there be other components that are found to have specific medical uh, effects? I, my guess is yes, almost certainly. So we just don't know what those are. And, and to answer um, your question about CBD um, being psychoactive, no, it's not. That's one of the reasons that it is available um, in, in all these shops. Um, it's because it does not have, have those, uh, the potential to impair you might see with the THC-containing um, product. And obviously not being a physician or out of my depth, but I tell you, in Israel, um, you know, CBG in particular is used uh, widespread for dementia and Alzheimer treatment, so it's an interesting application. My question, my question relates to the medical profession. Uh, I have heard that there's, well, I know there's doctors that will not uh, sign somebody's card, 
And I have also heard that there are doctors that sit in these stores just waiting to sign your card so you can spend your money to get your medical marijuana. And I'm not quite sure if there's any uh, regulatory thing on that or when doctors are going to feel comfortable enough to prescribe it to the patient. Anyway, that kind of an issue for those folks. There are some regulations on, like, they cannot uh, operate within a dispensary. Um, they can't set up shop in a dispensary, which I actually walked into a dispensary one time and there was a doctor in there, so that was kind of an interesting question I got to ask uh, as we had our photographer taking photos. But um, <laughs> So there are some regulations on that, um, but as far as, like, a quota or anything like that, I'm not aware of anything. I think that the medical boards that regulate license, licenses or there's some regulations that will have to come out to address your internet doctors because uh, you drive down Broadway Extension and there's an ad for an internet doctor to get your, your card. And those are going to be the places that that's going to be addressed. Um, as far as some doctors not prescribing it, there are actually hospitals too that say you cannot have um, you credential. Yes. The right you can't be credentialed at our hospital and have um, and practice here if you're going to prescribe it. So there are some hospitals that have policies and, and businesses that have policies related to that too. It's not always just the doctor. I mean, I think the the, the problem that you're describing or this issue is related to this one that the hospitals and physicians who don't want to be involved. It goes back to this issue of whether you feel that there is a legitimate medical use. Uh, in, in certain applications, or whether this is just a way to circumvent the law to create recreational marijuana. And so that, that's what people are concerned about, and you say, and that's, you know, obviously if you've got a physician, you know, in the back of a dispensary or on the internet, that's not a legitimate use, okay? an assessment of the patient's medical situation and suggestion that it, this might be beneficial for them. That's clearly circumventing the intent. Of the medical side of it. So that, that's why it's just the, the sort of, uh, I don't want to be associated with that. And, and, you know, it's not so rare that physicians will not do certain things, other things as well, uh, and particularly with, you know, like pain management now is one that people are very wary of getting too involved in because of the, of the you know, somewhat of risk associated that would rather refer the patient to someone else who does that more regularly. So that's, that's not too surprising. One of the issues that, that wasn't addressed, um, in my opinion, strongly enough in the original bill was the physician-patient relationship, and that was uh, cleaned up fairly significantly in the unity bill. Um, now the, there has to be a, some discussion, or supposed to be some discussion, about the use of the product, safe use of it. Um, I would argue as a pharmacist that um, uh, there needs to be some discussion about potential drug interactions. There, there are some medications that we know, for example, warfarin, uh, Coumadin, you might know it as blood thinner, uh, is, there is a fairly well-documented uh, drug interaction there. But getting back to that, that there had to be a physician-patient relationship. One thing I think that we got right with that unity bill as well is that previously um, that recommendation that the physician made was good for two years and that might have been the very last time that that, um, that patient saw that, that physician. Um, the physician couldn't do anything to claw back that, that uh, license. 
should there be problems done with the patient. Now the physician does have the authority to um, withdraw the, the approval for the medical marijuana patient. I think that was a great move by the legislature. My question is related to that as to what enters the discussion between, um, from your perceptions, uh, between the doctor and the patient and between the uh, patient or user and the dispensary regarding uh, the method of administration, uh, smoking versus edibles or uh, uh, all the options there. Uh, given what we know about the hazards of tobacco smoke and knowing that there are limitations on research because of the federal prohibition, um, you know, it stands to reason that there's probably greater risk for certain health outcomes from the uh, smoking uh, mode of administration versus edibles, while I know there's probably certain risk for edibles as well. Yeah, I'll just speak quickly to the issue of smoking. Uh, it's just not so clear what the effect of marijuana smoke is, but it, it almost certainly is a dose effect. I mean, how much, right? So like it is with cigarettes, right? Um, but it's, it clearly seems to be less harmful than cigarette smoking. I think that's fair to say. I mean, it just may be a dose issue, but that's pretty clear. I, uh, when the first bill was uh, being passed, you know, the, the medical association took a stance against it, and they tried to impose various criteria, one of which was no smoking, right? And so, uh, and from the outset, I thought that was misguided. And, and the, the reason is that we've, we've kind of talked around the issue of dose, but in general, so you know, no one knows the dose to tell you. Now, maybe the Cannabinista will have some experience that my the, 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 the bud doctor I remember, uh, they may say you know take a razor blade and slice off half of this gummy bear and you know and that that should be good but it's going to be that kind of thing it's not going to be like you know six milligrams in this tablet so like we would normally do uh, so my my point about that is there most of these uh, indications like for chronic pain for nausea things like that are the patient is treating a symptom that they have, and patients that we typically or frequently with patients with other types of medication have them titrate the drug, right? So you say like, well, if the pain is this way, try this one, and if it's not relieved in an hour, take another pill, right? And you probably had a physician tell you that. So that's a patient titrating the dose, because we don't know exactly which one's going to work here. So with marijuana, it's, we're always in that situation. Unless the patient has, is experienced, it knows that a certain amount of an edible will work for their whatever it is they're taking for. I think that smoking is a really good way to do that because the, the feedback is instantaneous with smoking, right? So if anybody's ever had a cigarette, you know, if you get that nicotine that fast, right? Bang, it hits you the second you inhale. So the same thing happens with the the relieving other symptoms. So if you're experiencing severe nausea from your chemotherapy, your cancer chemotherapy, and you inhale a cigarette, you know whether it's better, and so you can take another another puff or, or however many and then, then stop once it's and so that instant feedback is actually valuable because it keeps the patient from overdosing on you know edibles have a long lag time. So I actually I'm not arguing in favor of smoking in general, but I think in this circumstance, since we don't have any other way to prescribe dose, it's actually a pretty powerful way uh, to do it for these medical indications. Then we also have the option of, uh, I say we, <laughs> then the user also has the option of, of vaping rather than um, smoking the plant material itself. 
And I, I think there's a reasonable consensus in the medical community that if a, if a patient is going to choose one or the other, um, that most medical professionals would prefer that they vape because um, simply because there are fewer chemicals involved. With pyrolysis, the burning of plant material for um, cigarette smoking, um, marijuana smoking, we're talking about thousands of compounds that are generated, and we know that they are um, physically harmful. Um, so, so vaping is a possibility. It goes to the, the epidemic, if you will, of um, lung, uh, lung injury due to vaping cannabis products. Turns out that CDC, great job of epidemiology in looking at the, the um, vape products that were used to cause these, these lung injuries here recently in the last six months or so where people have died. And it turns out it was underground manufacture of um, the, the vape juice, the vape liquid cartridges. Um, the, the manufacturers could go to China, order in up a thousand empty cartridges as well as the packaging bootleg packaging that mimicked um, commercially available products and they were they were cutting it with vitamin E acetate which is what ultimately was causing lung injury in people so um, I, I agree 100% with it, the vaping or smoking is, um, is a way for a person to titrate it very rapidly there is some risk with uh, um, edibles in that onset of, of person actually feeling it, it might be two or three hours they don't feel it after 15 minutes 20 minutes they pay, may take another dose another dose another dose and they're going to feel like they get run over by a train in about two or three hours I, just in 20 seconds or less i was going to tell you we're in a, we support about 150 dispensaries statewide and approximately 70 percent of all sales are raw flour 30 percent are edibles and topicals um, and from a producer standpoint, one gap that exists in the market, our financial question, I can't get product liability insurance on a vaporizer, which is interesting. So you're actually pushing producers to actually not go healthier alternatives. We can't get coverage for that product liability. I can get product li liability on a raw flower. An interesting thing. Maybe two more. Okay. The, one of the standardized field sobriety tests that law enforcement uses for alcohol is the horizontal gaze nystagmus. Is marijuana use detected in that test? Are you familiar with it? I know it's used for alcohol, but I, I don't know the answer uh, whether it, it's uh, or the marijuana uh, is positive in that test. I don't, I don't believe it is, and that actually points out one of the problems that we have. Um, not just in this state, but all states where um, some form of marijuana has been made legal, is, is identifying acute um, intoxication. Um, we don't have a, a device where you can blow in on the side of the road. Um, the person who does come up with such a device is going to be a multi-billionaire. Multi-millionaire. best thing we have right now is you turn on a Polly Shore movie, and if you laugh, you're high. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in the back. My question is kind of related to that. Have you had any documented issues where someone was under the influence, marijuana, behind the wheel of a car, accident? Are those starting to come up more often, uh, specifically in some of these places where it has been legal for some time? Is that starting to be a reality, or is that something that you think might be coming, or what do you think? 
I certainly think it's coming. I have been fortunate, my clients have been fortunate enough at this point to not have anybody behind the wheel um, and have that issue. Um, in all honesty, the only time I've seen the issue is on live PD. So if I'm going to be honest, um, no, we, have, we haven't seen that issue yet. And I think that a lot of that has to do with the, the employers that have drivers have testing and are testing them ahead of time and testing them fairly regularly. Um, and that's how they're handling it, if it's a, if it's a serious concern. It was a ton of fun, and we've got a lot of coverage coming up on theoklahoman.com. So follow along and read what we have to say.